0: You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit JcastNetwork.org. Good to see you all. Um, Welcome to our first, our first ever Hasidic Chabura. Um, my hope is uh, that uh, once a month we'll gather together, and um, uh, if you're, of course, unable to make it in some months, that's fine, and uh, if uh, um, others join us, that's also fine. Um, we'll, we'll try to make sure that there's a little catch-up period at each session. Um, but we'll gather together once a month to uh, study uh, some of the most powerful words of some of the great Hasidic pastors. That's what I want to do together, and then to be able to have a conversation together about what those texts have to teach, so we'll be basing our conversations on a text, that's what you have in front of you, we'll get to that in a second, um, but uh, we don't need to feel wedded to that text, so if you, uh, if, if uh, you know, a thought arises, a comment, a question about what we're looking at, um, feel free to join in, and um, they'll all start us off with uh, unpacking the text. Um, uh, no one needs to feel like you need to wait for an opening to either raise your hand or, or give your voice to the conversation. Um, love for this to be a, a give and take, um, <clears throat> and we'll also hopefully uh, start each week with uh, or each month uh, that we're learning together with uh, with some singing, and then hopefully also uh, end with some singing too, um, because more than uh, the Hasidic tradition. Um, is uh, only really secondarily a cognitive tradition, a text tradition. Uh, the Hasidic tradition is really a devotional tradition, uh, is really an experiential tradition, a tradition where uh, the, the 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 experience, uh, the, the emotions, the soul of Jewish living and Jewish life is the primary focus, and secondarily the analysis of what all of it means. That's secondary in Hasidic tradition. And especially because the texts that we're going to look at have to do with prayer, at least for this year, because that's our educational theme and there's a congregation for this year, the Hasidic texts that we're going to look at are going to have to do with prayer. Uh, Especially because of that, we'll do some singing beforehand. And even as time goes on, if anybody wants to uh, offer either at the beginning of our sessions or at the end of our sessions, Um, A personal prayer, a spontaneous prayer uh, for our learning, that would be great. We're not going to put anybody on the spot today, but if you want to offer that uh, in the coming months, uh, you're welcome to do so. Because the whole point, uh, and as we'll see in in the text we're going to look at today, the whole point of the Hasidic tradition is really to get to that emotional core of Jewish life, that experience. The text we're going to be looking at today, uh, which is actually the first part in uh, a, a series of uh, essays uh, by a, a really phenomenal Hasidic master named uh, Rabbi Shalom Noach Berezovsky, um, uh, otherwise known as the Slona Merebi, the last Slona Merebi. Uh, uh, he wrote a series of essays on prayer. We're going to start over the... We may, That may take us the whole years to look at those essays together um, on prayer, unless you guys really don't like it, in which case we might look at something else. Uh, but um, uh, um, I love the Slonim Rebbe for a few reasons. The first is that he is a uh, more contemporary Hasidic master. Um, so the Hasidic tradition, for those who don't know, uh, was uh, um, begun in the uh, 18th century uh, by a rabbi named um, uh, Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov, um, Rabbi Israel uh, Baal Shem Tov, which means the master of the good name, uh, which uh, probably refers to, it was a title that was given to um, uh, magicians and miracle workers in uh, the Middle Ages, people who could invoke uh, God's true name to heal people or to make miracles happen and that sort of thing. Um, and so uh, Rabbi, uh, the Baal Shem Tov, as he's known, or sometimes the Besht, uh, which is the acronym of his name, uh, was sort of like a, a charismatic, itinerant uh, preacher uh, who uh, revolutionized, and he's really, you know, in the, uh, in the pantheon of, of, of Jewish greats. He's, he's certainly up there. Um, in you know probably the top ten you know, you, know, you have Moses, Rabbi Akiva, um, you know Maimonides, the Baal Shem Tov. I mean, he's really a revolutionary figure in, in Jewish life, um, and his his revolution uh, was that for most of Jewish history until his time, from say the time of the destruction of the Second Temple until his time in the Middle Ages. So spanning the duration of most of uh, Jewish exile, uh, Judaism had been primarily um, an intellectual tradition. It was a tradition of the study hall, uh, and it therefore had a sort of aristocracy of the learned. Uh, you you gained you reached prominence in Jewish life by being able to have the most you know, erudite uh, explanations of Talmud in Jewish text, uh, and Jewish uh, texts, and 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 study was a, a, a priority. Uh, but uh, the Baal Shem Tov lived in a time where there was a lot of uh, Jewish poverty and a lot of Jewish illiteracy. And so a lot of Jews, maybe the vast majority of Jews of his time, uh, um, really felt like they had no access, no uh, value in Jewish life if they you know, couldn't be in the echelons of, of highest learning. So the revolution of the Baal Shem Tov was uh, to say that Judaism is not so much a, a tradition of the head as it is a tradition of the heart. Um, and, uh, and he, so he went around uh, the, the countryside in Eastern Europe uh, to villages and peasants uh, teaching this. And this drew the ire of um, the religious establishment of his time uh, who, uh, in response to the movement that he started, the Hasidic movement, has, Hasidic, by the way, means, it's from the Hebrew word has, uh, chesed, which means uh, love, right? And uh, a Hasid is, somebody, is, a devo- is someone who's devoted Um, Devoted to God, devoted to their teachers, devoted to Torah, devoted to religious life. Uh, There is, in rabbinic tradition, uh, a a term known as a a chasid, and uh, especially in in contexts where it talks about prayer, uh, periodically it'll talk about the chasidim harishonim, which are usually untranslated, and no one really knows what what the rabbis were referring to when they said the chasidim harishonim, which means the early Hasidim, the early pious ones, the early devoted ones. No one really knows what they're talking about, but what we know about them is that they used to do things like meditate for an hour before prayer in order to make sure their hearts were prepared for prayer. Um, so they were they, they had this sort of devotional quality and that's really the idea of a chassid. so when the Baal Shem Tov started a movement uh, and called it uh, a chassidut, right, it was the practice of learning to become somebody devoted to God right, through emotion uh, through, uh, through love, through practice not so much through study uh, although the Baal Shem Tov himself and his disciples uh, were all learned people right? he, was, uh, he, he knew the tradition inside and out uh, but in his teaching, that wasn't his focus. Right? What he wanted to say to people is that you could be a good Jew, you could be a holy person, um, even if you don't know the Talmud backwards and forwards, even if you don't know all the prayers by heart, right? That sort of thing. Um, the the Baal Shem Tov had a devoted core of students. The most notable of which is a uh, was a man named uh, Rabbi Dov Ber, the Maggid of Mezritch, uh, and. Uh, Uh, A Magid means a storyteller, really. So uh, there's a lot of uh, scholarship that suggests that it's possible the Baal Shem himself didn't really exist that his student, uh, because we don't really have any first-hand accounts of the Baal Shem Tov, most of what we know about the Baal Shem Tov comes from his student, the Magid of Mezritch, and because he was primarily a Magid, he was a storyteller, we wonder if maybe he was just telling stories. You know, ra- rabbis from time to time uh, tell stories that have a basis in reality in the sense that they have a, a moral truth to them, or a, an experiential truth, but may not be factually accurate. Right? So we don't know, so maybe the, the, the Magid, but well, we do know that the Magid uh, of Mezritch uh, uh, existed and he and he popularized even more so than the Baal Shem Tov did the the teachings of early Hasidut and he had a devoted core of students himself who uh, really became the founding fathers of um, of the Hasidic world as we know it today um, so among the Magid of Mezritch's students were um, a man named um uh, uh, Reb Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev the Berdichev Rebbe um uh, um, Rabbi Eli Melech of Lezhensk, uh, who's known as the Noam Eli Melech, and probably the one who, who uh, if you haven't heard of him, you've definitely heard of his movement. Uh, uh, he's known as the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liadi. Uh, the Alter Rebbe is Yiddish for First Rebbe, and he's the First Rebbe of uh, Chabad Lubavitch. Right, so um, so Chabad traces its roots back pretty deep in the Hasidic tradition, as do a lot of other um, uh, uh, communities, Hasidic communities. Uh, the rabbis, the rabbi whose text we're looking at now, is a, a more contemporary Hasidic rabbi. So he lived in the 20th century. Uh, he uh, moved from Slonim, which was in uh, um, uh, 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 Poland. Uh, to, uh, Israel at the, uh, outset of, uh, World War II, escaping, um, the, the Holocaust and, uh, planted the Sloan community in, uh, uh, in Israel, if I'm not mistaken, in Bnei Barak, which is near Tel Aviv, um. And, uh, and that's where the Slonim or community uh, is. The Slonim community is today. There's not. There's, as far as I know, not any Hasidic community still in Slonim. But well, there's probably Slonim or Hasidim uh, in like places like you know Brooklyn or you know somewhere like that. There probably are. Um, uh, but my, for the vast majority of the community followed the Rebbe uh, into in, B'nai Barak in, in Israel. So he's a modern. So one of the reasons I like him is as opposed to most of the Hasidic masters, especially the early Hasidic masters, they didn't write their own books what they did was they preached on Shabbos or on, or on Yantif, usually in Yiddish, uh, and their disciples, because they couldn't write on Shabbos, would memorize what they said and then write it down after Shabbos. Uh, and they usually would write it down uh, in Hebrew after Shabbos. They would translate it, not only memorize it, but then translate it into Hebrew because they wanted the text, the written text that would be uh, kept for posterity, to be in the sort of eternal language of the Jewish people, I think partially for spiritual reasons. They wanted to be connected to the the language of the Torah, and also for practical reasons. They didn't know if Jews a thousand years from them would be speaking Hebrew, I mean, would be speaking Yiddish, but they assumed since the Torah was written in Hebrew, they would still uh, know some Hebrew, so they wrote them in Hebrew. What that means about those uh, traditional texts are that uh, for... Uh, modern Jews, even for uh, Jews who have a, a capacity in Hebrew, sometimes those texts are really hard to uh, to make your way through um, because they're 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 like a copy of a copy in a way, right? You know, so they're they're written from memory. Sometimes memory's good, sometimes it's not so good. And uh, there's a funny story about that. The, the, one of the uh, Maggid of Messages students is a, um, a a rabbi who's known as the Ma'ore Naim. Um, which is the name of uh, his most famous work, collection of uh, sermons. And it said about the Maori Naim that he would give his sermon on Shabbos, and his disciples would uh, his what his disciple would write it down, and then bring it to him to check. And it, it was said that if he rem- if he uh, recognized anything that was said, right, if he, if he was brought the sermon, he says, "Oh, I remember saying that." He wouldn't let it be printed. Uh, because that meant that he wasn't channeling uh, the Ruach HaKodesh. He wasn't channeling the Divine Spirit, the Holy Spirit, when he was speaking, because then he remembered it. So he'd only let things be written down that he didn't remember saying. Um, which, can, which is an interesting... Uh, Uh, Methodology, but also can be really problematic if you really want to uh, uh, get to what he actually said. But the other problem with it is that it was—you know—these are uh, written from memory, translated into Hebrew from people who weren't themselves native Hebrew speakers. Um, So, so the the texts are, are are difficult. Uh, the Solomon Rebbe, on the other hand, um, uh, uh, though he wasn't a native Hebrew speaker, lived in uh, modern Israel and had uh, a fluency in modern Hebrew. So much of what he writes, except for when he's quoting older texts or writing in shorthand, which I'll get to in a second, um, uh, is in, is in um, pretty easily understandable modern Hebrew for those who are, have a little bit of capacity with modern Hebrew. Um, the other reason that I like the Slonomer Rebbe um, is that uh, he, uh, um, you know, there, there's a whole spectrum within the Hasidic tradition about you know, um, how mystical and how emotional you are versus how um, rational and intellectual you are. Um, Chabad, for example, is closer to the rational and intellectual side of the Hasidic tradition uh, than, say, Reb Yitzhak Yitzchak Berdichev was much more on the uh, emotional, spiritual side. Um, and uh, that's a whole other story when talking about what Chabad actually stands for or whatever, but, uh, but so the Slonim Rebbe is a little bit more on the intellectual, uh, rational side of the Hasidic tradition uh, so for those of us who are kind of schooled in Western thought, um, he's a little bit easier to unpack, I think, because he writes in a you know, more clearly laid out style, um, so that's another reason that I like the Slonim Rebbe um, so before we, so okay, and here's the thing about the, the, the very few um, of the great Hasidic masters um, are in are are have uh, like published translation published English translations uh, surrounding them very few um, the ones that do have English translations uh, the translations are um, at least as problematic as the originals. Um, not, not the least of which is that, uh, um, you know, very often, uh, English translations are interpretations, right? So, um, so you have to get through that level. Um, uh, but, um, uh, but, but less contemporary Hasidic masters are written in translation in English. It's just not an area where, um, a lot of English speakers are studying these texts or wanting to study these texts. Um, and so there is not, you know, like a, a a well-funded apparatus behind it uh, to get them published uh, in, in English translation, um, as, as opposed to, say, like the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, which uh, the Orthodox community um, had a, has had a big push in in the last you know two decades to try to get more people to study Talmud, uh, and so it is publishing translations of Talmud in, in, in English. I mean, it doesn't really happen in the, for Hasidic text. So a lot of what we're going to want to study, the best stuff, um, is uh, doesn't have published translations, which means that you get Chinese newspaper in front of you uh, and, uh, and I, I recognize that uh, for those of you uh, who um, have uh, difficulty with Hebrew don't aren't so, uh, um, don't have a lot of facility with Hebrew that seeing a text like this might as well be you know just scribbles on a page so I'm going to try to go through it and, and unpack it as much as I can when I, this happened to be a, a, a rough, uh, stretch with the holidays and um, and and some and deaths in our community. A funeral I, I have a little bit later this afternoon too. Um, so if I am able to, in a given month that we have our Hasidic Havra, and we're going to be using a text that's not already written in translation, I'll do my best to try to write out a translation. Um, it just depends on whether I have time to do so. So I just hope you'll bear with me uh, and uh, and follow along. I'll be reading and translating uh, each word, each phrase. Yeah. So, oh, is
1: this page from the Talmud?
0: No, this is a page from a published work from the uh, from Rabbi Shul- Shalom Noach Berezovsky, the Son of a Rabbi, Rebbe, uh, called Nitivot Shalom. Shalom. Um, uh, <clears throat> he quotes from places in the Talmud and other tradition, but this is uh, um, this is uh, his book. This is what he wrote. Uh, and the. Can you his name again? Yeah, Rabbi Shalom Noah. Berezovsky. I think it's a uh, B-E-R-Z-O-V-S-K-Y. Well, he's usually referred to as the Slonimer Rebbe. S-L-O-N-I-M-E-R. Slonimer, yeah, Slonimer Rebbe. Um, as far as I, as memory serves me. Um, like a lot, of, like happens with a lot of Hasidic communities, there is no current Slonim or Rebbe um, when he died there was no replacement yeah. selected for him so were they in Brooklyn as
1: well?
0: Uh, not positive, there might be pockets of them in, in places like New York but uh, but for sure the largest living Slonim community is B'nai Brock, Israel yeah. I'm pretty sure it's B'nai Brock okay other questions or comments about this? Okay, so we're starting, there's a, there's a bold Hebrew Aleph. That's where we're going to start. But the title of this essay uh, is, uh, and by the way, the, the, with this book, Nitivot Shalom, um, is, uh, is uh, several volumes. Uh, most of the volumes are commentaries on the weekly Torah portion. Um, which were probably sermons, oral sermons given on the weekly Torah portion. Uh, and then has, uh, there's two volumes, one dealing with the uh, holidays and one on sort of like miscellaneous Jewish topics, like prayer, for example. And so this is the uh, first essay in that collection dealing with prayer. And uh, the title of it is Avodah Shebalev Zot Filah, um, which means uh, the service of the heart that is prayer. Uh, which uh, is a fitting because our uh, theme, our educational theme for the year, is titled "Mastering the Service of the Heart." Okay, so um, uh, prayer is the service of the heart is the title of this. Okay? And he starts by saying this: "Katav haRambam." Okay, so the Rambam, Maimonides, Rabbi Moses Maimonides, uh, wrote "Berush Hilchot Tvilah, Perak Aleph Vezel so he wrote in the beginning, Maimonides has a collection of, uh, of a code of Jewish law, uh, which is known as the Mishnah Torah. Uh, and, uh, um, and so one of the books of the Mishnah Torah uh, deals with Hilchot Tfilah, the laws of prayer. Okay, so, so he's starting out with a quote from Maimonides. Maimonides said at the beginning of the Laws of Prayer, uh, in the first chapter, and this is his language, so he's introducing a quote here. Mitzvat ase lehitballel bechol yom. It's a positive commandment. Uh, which, which doesn't mean, like, it's a, it's a happy commandment. It means that it's a thou shalt, right? It's, and so Maimonides makes actually a pretty bold statement by saying that, uh, that, uh, that, that the obligation to pray every day is a commandment, a positive commandment from the Torah. Um, and uh, and he, there's a proof text that Maimonides gives. It's from Shemot Kaf Gimmo, uh, Book of Exodus, Chapter 23. va'avaditem et Adonai Eloheichem. You shall serve the Lord your God. Maimonides uh, says that that's the source for the commandment to pray. Now, that's a um, uh, uh, that's a pretty bold statement because the uh, the commandment there, mm-hmm. you should serve the Lord your God, um, is really referring to sacrifice in that. Uh, Instance and in every basically instance when the Torah talks about worship of God uses that word avodah, um, it's talking about the system of sacrifices that occurred first in the Mishkan in the portable sanctuary that the Jews had in the wilderness, and then in the temple that was in Jerusalem. Right. So, uh, so Maimonides is making a claim that when the Torah says avodah. It's actually not talking specifically about sacrifices, but it's talking generally about worship. The form that worship took in a certain time and place was through sacrifices, primarily animal sacrifices, but even in a context where we don't have animal sacrifices anymore, we're still obligated to worship God. Mipi So we learned through oral tradition, right? Uh, if you uh, uh, remember, there's a, a tradition among the rabbis that there are Two Torahs. One is the written Torah, the Torah that Moses was given on Mount Sinai, and the other is the oral Torah, the, um, the interpretive tradition of the Torah, which, according to the rabbis, was also given to Moses on Mount Sinai, was spoken to Moses on Mount Sinai, and passed from Moses to Joshua, and Joshua to uh, the uh, elders of Israel, and the elders to the prophets, and so on and so forth, on down the line. So uh, Maimonides says, From the oral tradition, uh, we learn... That this service that the Torah is talking about, which we usually read contextually to mean sacrifice, is really talking more broadly about prayer. Right? So this this service is prayer. Mitzvazo And so the, the mitzvah, the commandment, should be fulfilled like this. Shehe adam mitpalel umitchanen yo. That a person should pray and uh, and offer supplications. um, uh, um, uh, What's a good modern English word for supplication? Um, uh, uh, Like like pour out your heart. uh, um, Ask for compassion. Ask for asking for grace. Right? Uh, Chen is is grace, and so mitchanein is 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 like the 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 seeking of grace. Right? Um, So a person should pray. And, uh, and and seek compassion, or or pour their heart out to God Bechol uh, yom, each and every day. Umagid shivcho Barhu. And also contain. So we have a few dimensions of this commandment for prayer. One part of the commandment for prayer is that a person should uh, should pray and supplicate every day. The second thing is that a person should uh, speak of the praise of the Holy One. And then after that, a person should ask for his or her own needs, uh, the, the things that he or she needs, with uh, requests and other supplications. Okay? So three parts of tefillah. Uh, three parts of prayer. Right? Three things contained in this. One is um, uh, to... Uh, uh, to uh, um, uh, uh, one is to uh, pour your heart out to pray, right? Um, which could mean um, gratitude or could mean uh, pain, whatever it is. Um, the second is to praise God. And the third is to ask for things that you need, right? Um, but, act- but look at it carefully. Maimonides says, right? only after you do those first two things uh, should you do the third thing. Right, the asking God for things um, is kind of the, the the stepchild of prayer. Right, it's the it's the very last thing you worry about. The other things are primary. The asking for things is secondary. Which I just want to lay out there, and I've mentioned this before, but it's worthy of note that uh, that that in the Jewish tradition, um, uh, prayer is primarily not about asking for things that you need in your life. Right, which is a uh, um, you know, usually because English is a language influenced by the dominant culture from which it came, which was Christianity, and uh, and prayer in um, in the Christian in a lot of Christian traditions um, is prim- is actually uh, uh, more along the lines of. Um, uh, of asking for one's needs, right? asking God to provide for one's needs. Um, So we use this word prayer to refer to uh, what we do in synagogue or whatever for Judaism, but prayer is not a Hebrew word. right? And so when we use that term to describe something that we're doing Jewishly, we're bringing within it um, all of the associations and contexts from which that English term came um, that may not be applicable to the Jewish context that we're applying it to. Right. Everybody with me on that? Right. So um, so it's important to know what Maimonides says, that uh, that the whole idea of prayer as a as a space to ask God for stuff. Right. To you know, whatever it is, it may not be petty. It may, you know, you either ask God for, you know, to win the lottery or you can ask God to cure your illness. I mean, those are both asking for things. Um, and so I'm not saying that those are petty things that we ask for necessarily. Um, but nevertheless, that is not the primary focus of prayer. Jewishly. Um, okay, and so um since we're at a period, I'm just going to pause there to see if there are any comments or questions or thoughts. And and uh, my my intention uh, for the text that we're looking at today is not that we're going to finish this text today. I'm happy to go as slow or as fast as uh, as as people want. Uh, the essay um, about uh, prayer in nativo Shalom uh, spans a few pages. This is just the first page. And like I said, if we spend the whole year on this, um, that would be fine. I mean, I think there's a lot to unpack here. So I have no... Burning desire to get through everything today.
1: On on asking, it is more important and more productive to ask for things for others rather than self, Mm. because sharing will pour on its own blessings. Mm. Beautiful.
2: The thought along those lines is, in Torah, we're told if we do what God commands, we have the things we need, Mm -hmm. but we're commanded to be grateful. Mm -hmm. And so that seems to come first, that if we're grateful and if we are seeking God, that there should be less need to ask specifically for things. Well,
0: that's a a really interesting point, Carla. I mean, the Mishnah says something like that. The Mishnah says, uh, Ben Zoma, uh, a later uh, rabbinic master, says, Ezehu ashir hasameach bechalko. Right, who is a wealthy person? The person who is happy with what uh, he or she has, right? So if you cultivate gratitude for your life, um, you actually minimize the need that you have to act, to ask for things because you have everything you need, right? Yeah. It's
2: not that it'll never happen, but it shouldn't be the primary focus. It'll be that thing you have to do every now and then.
0: And for, for what it's worth, I mean, the, you know, the, the Salonim Rebbe, I don't think, was thinking this way. It's certainly not Maimonides. Um but you know, it's now corroborated by good, hard science that a practice of gratitude um, uh, makes us more happy. Right, you live a happier life if you're uh, if you're you know if you're able to be happy with what you have if you're if you're able uh, and have a practice of expressing gratitude um, on a regular basis, even a daily basis. Right, so there's there's actually really good science for that. Um, you know, in addition to the spiritual science benefits. Right, science is catching up. Right? science is catching up to what we all always knew. Yeah, Lisa. So, in the original
1: Jewish tradition, when you're uh, when you're praying, less for asking. But you're praying for the sick or for the dead. Are you praying for the sort of the best interest of in the sick or the dead, or are you specifically asking for a, you know, because we always pray for the sick and the dead. Are we, right. You know what I'm saying? Like, what's the intention of the prayer? Is it sort of to put it in God's hand, or do you understand what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, I do. Um, so it's a it's a it's a tricky question, and sort of depends on your theology, right? Um, I think that. You know the the if you if you look at the let's take the prayer for the ill for example right um if you if you look at that uh, prayer uh, as literally as possible what you're doing in that prayer is um, asking God to intercede in a person's life and cure them of their illness right um I I happen to think and I talked about this on on Yom Kippur a little bit um, I, I happen to think that that view is problematic in a number of ways, um, you know, not the least of which is, you know, so what does it mean if the person doesn't get better? Does that mean that God, for some reason, decided not to intervene in that person's life? And if so, why? I mean, it just raises a whole bunch of problematic questions, most of which I think are not um, helpful and probably not even true. So I don't think about it that way, but I suspect a person, I mean, I'm sure lots of people do, and, and, and a person certainly can, um, and probably... The people who composed the prayer thought of what they were writing in, in that way. right? So, when you pray for a person's healing, um, you're actually asking God to intercede in their life. Um, but I don't think that that's the only way of, of reading or reciting a prayer like that. I mean, I think that, um, and this is also, you know, this is a frontier of science, but for whatever it's worth, um, that there is strong evidence to suggest. That, first of all, people who know you're praying for them when they're ill uh, uh, tend to do better, uh, recover faster, uh, um, uh, uh, live longer uh, than people who, uh, for whom nobody's praying for them. Uh, and that's just, that's partially a psychological thing, and right? knowing that people care about them helps keep them alive and, and pr- promotes healing. But it's also a uh, um, has impact on, on the unconscious level of reality too. I mean, I think there's there's a, a, a quantum mechanics at work there, um, which is also why um, really interesting studies show that uh, that, that people who uh, who are prayed for. Even if they're not told that they're being prayed for, actually demonstrate a better recovery than people who are not being prayed for at all, um, which is which is really fascinating. And I think that part of that um, is that uh, that you know we we. Though we kind of see ourselves as solid substances, we're actually kind of in a big soup together. Uh, we're really liquids uh, in, in a lot of ways. We're all intermingling all the time, and so it's possible to impact somebody's uh, physical well-being um, through uh, through your, the mental energy you provide for them. Um, maybe only a little bit, right? And only the smallest level, um, but the but the science on it is really interesting. So when I when the, the way I think about prayers for healing in that way are. Are kind of in that vein, right? You're sort of giving your, giving yourself, you know, your energy, your vitality over to them, right? You're putting it out there, and and, and it and it and it transfers to them. Um, so that's another way of looking at it, which is the I think a non-traditional way of looking at it, but it, it, it's more helpful to me for a handful of reasons. Praying for the dead is a different thing, um, and I guess part of the question is. You know when we say when you say praying for the dead, what do you mean by that? Um, if you're saying the Kaddish, for example, the Kaddish um, is actually uh, the the audience of the Kaddish is the human community, right? So itkadav kadash uh, me rabbah, right, which means uh, may God's name be exalted and glorified. But you're saying uh, like to the audience. Assembled, right? Let's all praise and extol God's name, right? You're not saying to God, um, uh, you know, you're really super great, and I think your name should be exalted, right? You're talking to the immediate audience, um, so it's not exactly a prayer for the dead, uh, even though it's said in the the context of praying for the dead. Um, and the other more, most popular prayer for the dead, memorial prayer, is the El Male Rachamim, um, which which reads more like. A prayer for healing, right? That it's a prayer in which we're asking God to do something on our behalf for the deceased. Um, and again, I think that the composers of, of that prayer probably intended that to be meant literally, right? You, um, you ask and God delivers, right? Um, and I think that that's certainly a plausible way, depending on your theology, that you can look at a prayer like that. I mean, I tend to interpret prayers like that a little bit more naturalistically, right? That um, uh, that when we when we ask God to um, embrace the the soul of our loved one in in, um, in God's sheltering presence and in the bonds of everlasting life, I, I mean what I say when I say that. Um, uh, and I also think that it has impact on, uh, uh, if you want to call it the soul of, uh, of, of your loved one or the, um, or the residual energy of your loved one, or I even want to say that uh, we want that, um, that energy or that soul um, to remain eternally part of, um, of, of our reality. Right? Um, so that's just a modern gloss, I guess, on that probably medieval I'm assuming off the top of my head that it's medieval prayer, um, where that's probably not what they meant by it, but I think it's what we can mean by it, right? And I, and I think that that's true for a lot of Jewish tradition, that you know our ancestors operated from a different theology, uh, which uh, uh, than many of us have, um, which stems from a different um, understanding of the world than many of us have. I'm not saying that their understanding was wrong; it's just uh, different than our understanding. I mean uh, the that there wasn't even there wasn't there wasn't scientific study in in uh medieval eastern europe right so um so i don't i don't begrudge them for having the theology that that they did but in in um in our context those theologies are a little bit more problematic for 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 some reasons um but um uh, but i think you know for me and this is especially true as a conservative jew um i prefer to conserve those traditions, right, to say that, that even though I don't necessarily uh, believe in the same theology that the person who wrote that prayer believes in, I think conserving the tradition is by and large a good thing. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, um, usually I can um, interpret those prayers or those rituals or those acts in a way that's satisfying to me um, when I can't uh, that might be time where we set an older tradition aside, um, but usually I won't even do that unless there's something morally problematic about it, right? Um, you know, so uh, so if you know if the tradition of reciting El Male Rachamim required us to sacrifice a virgin in order for it to work, right? Then I might say let's not do that one anymore. Um, but but it doesn't, right? So so I don't know if that really helped answer your question, um, but.
2: Everybody, can I add a piece to that? Sure. Before I actually came to Judaism, when I was learning, these were the two prayers I read about that coming from a fundamentalist Christian background. sounded almost like they bordered on a witchcraft to me, mm-hmm. praying for the dead and all this stuff. And yet, having lost my father right before I turned 13, and having... I didn't go to his funeral because I wanted to remember him alive, and people thought I was in denial. And all through my life, there was never this closure. So as I got ready to convert... I was thinking, I want to say Kaddish for my dad. And it was two different people's teaching from two different sources. I don't think they knew each other. But it hit my email box in the same week that really totally flipped it and made this one of the most meaningful prayers, especially Kaddish for me. And the way they described it was that when a person's alive on this earth, they can give praise to God. They can do things that bring praise to God, that can bring honor to themselves. When they die, they can't do that anymore. But if they've touched lives and left people behind, and we say Kaddish, offering praise to God, and we ask that, that they be remembered and connected to the things that we do, the giving of charity and such, like you mentioned, then they continue to accrue benefit and to accrue have their name attached to this. And it's one of the most powerful ways to honor them and to, to recognize God in this earth. Through the people that he uses to touch our lives. Beautiful.
1: Well, just <clears throat> to uh, maybe take that a little further, is um, it conservative tradition that it's more important to say Kaddish on the date of the site or on the Friday night of you know the week <clears throat> the person died?
0: Well, so you're you're getting into a uh, a a, a, a a very contentious political issue in our congregation, but um uh, <laughs> but, yeah, no um, but i would say, I would say that uh, the <laughs> ideal would be to say it on the York site itself, on the date of the York site itself
1: okay. yeah. um. I've never asked for anything except a recovery and good health for family members and friends but for myself. Mm-hmm. All I've ever asked for is the strength to cope with what I may have to cope with.
0: Right, and that's, and, and that's a beautiful thing, right? So th- there's different dimensions of what it means to ask for your needs, right? You know, there, and there's a difference between you know, asking to win the lottery, right, and asking for the, uh, the wisdom and the ability to be happy with what we have or the strength to get through what we, what we need. And that's, I think, you know, the, the, I, I said this also in my, my Yom Kippur, my Kol Nidre sermon, right, that the, the, the Hebrew term for prayer is tefillah, Which uh, doesn't literally mean there's no Hebrew word that I guess literally translates to prayer, Um, but tefillah is is sort of like um, uh, self reflection, self judgment, right? Uh, And uh, and and the the process, like what we do there, is we we um, we strengthen ourselves, we reinforce ourselves through the process of prayer. So. you already have the strength inside you to withstand what you need, right? You just some, you just periodically need to uh, um, need need a booster shot for it, right? Um, and uh, and so that's uh, being having the space and the opportunity for prayer gives, I think, um, powerful moments where you know it, it's not. I mean, you could believe, and and if you do, that's that's a beautiful belief that God supernaturally gives you that strength, but also um, that that you could just well it up from with within you, right, and it, and it has the same impact. I saw um, this is sort of trivial. This is not as beautiful as what you were saying, Eva, but uh, uh, the, the movie um, Pirates of the Caribbean uh, uh, Johnny Depp's character, Jack Sparrow, do you ever see these movies? Alright, you don't have time for such frivolous things, but, um, <laughs> but Johnny Depp's character, Jack Sparrow says, the problem isn't the problem, the problem is your attitude about the problem. Right. And, uh, and and prayer, I think, in a lot of ways, is uh, is a is a trainer for our attitude about the problem, right? Rather than solving the problem. Um, beautiful. All right, let's read a little bit further. So uh, I'm now one, two, three, four, five, six, seven lines down. Okay, for if you wanted to follow along. Bior uh, devarav. So an explanation of what Maimonides was saying. Yesh uh, Lomar, that's a rabbinic idiom for, now I'm going to explain it. Ki ta kohanim um, so in, uh, in the, uh, sorry, Ki Torah HaKodesh, excuse me, in, uh, uh, in, the, in the Holy Torah. Yesh Inyanei Mitzvot Masiyot Katsitsit Utzfilin V'Chadomeh. Okay, so in the Torah we have um, experiential, actionable commandments, uh, tactile commandments, uh, like tzitzit, right? The fringes we wear on on our garments or on our tallis, uh, tfilin, right? The phylacteries that uh, we wear, <laughs> things like them. Right. So those are things that we, uh, um, through those actions, fulfill God's will through those actions, through those deeds. Okay. So then there are things that are called avodah that are called service or that are called worship kedugmat avodata korbanot right so for example the the worship or the service of the sacrifices so he's saying there, there's he's saying there's there's kind of two kinds of commandments right there are um, there, you might want to call them. You might call them like physical commandments and spiritual commandments, right? Uh, tactile commandments and emotional commandments. So I don't know uh, how exactly you want to uh, divide those categories, but he identifies the sacrifices as a different sort of category of commandment than, say, wearing tefillin prayer, is connected to the uh, to the kind of mitzvah, the kind of commandment that was uh, sac- the worship of the sacrifices. Okay, and so uh, and and uh, um, and that's what. Maimonides meant when he said that the commandment was um, uh, we serve God every day through tefillah. Right, so he was saying that prayer. Maimonides, this is now the son of Marevi's interpretation of what Maimonides said. Right, saying there are two kinds of commandments. Right, uh, spiritual commandments and physical commandments, uh, and um, and spiritual commandments include things like the sacrifices and prayer. Tefillah is included in that category, and that's what Maimonides meant when he said that uh, um, uh, that uh, uh, serving at God every day um, in Tefillah is a commandment. The yesh hasovrim shemitzvot kavana. this is really the the crux of what he's going to be talking about, right? Um, and and because we know, because Maimonides says that uh, that that prayer is a commandment from the Torah um, and is a spiritual commandment, it raises a challenge because in most of the Jewish tradition, and most, for most commandments, they require kavanah, which means intent, right? Um, and usually, for most commandments, the intent that you need is the intent to fulfill the commandment by virtue of the act. Right. So, um, if I accidentally put on tefillin, um, but I didn't mean to be fulfilling a commandment when I was putting on tefillin, not sure how that could happen, but right. But let's say let's say you suspend disbelief for a minute, right? I haven't actually fulfilled the commandment, right? But what does that mean for prayer, right? Does that mean only that um, I need to uh, um, know by virtue of coming to synagogue and opening the prayer book and reading the prayers, I'm fulfilling a commandment? Is that kavanah? Is that the intent I need? Or is intent because it's a spiritual commandment something deeper than that? Right, I need to have uh, some kind of deeper awareness, deeper intention in the act of prayer than just knowing that by virtue of having my Tush in the pew, I'm fulfilling a commandment. Right? That's the that's really the question he wants to answer. So imbu mitzvot Yesha Sovrim mitzvot srichot kavana. Right? So but there are people who say that uh, uh, that you know if I uh, put on tefillin uh and uh, and it was an accident, I didn't know I was filling commandment when I did it, um, I still can get credit for having worn tefillin. Um mesug But tfila, right? Even if you are of the opinion that a commandment doesn't require intention, right? Doesn't require awareness that you're fulfilling commandment. Certainly, prayer has to be in a different category. Because prayer is avodah, prayer is this kind of category of commandment. That's a spiritual, emotional category of commandment, right? The Maimonides says it's avodah lev. It's it's worship, it's service of the heart, right? So if it's if it's service of the heart, if it's worship of the heart, how could you do that without any kind of intention, right? Any kind of awareness. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Ulachen posek rabenu, and so that's why Maimonides continues to say in chapter four, Sham beperik Dalid, there in chapter four of his laws of prayer. That any prayer that isn't done with intentionality, isn't done with awareness, is not tefillah. is not didn't count, doesn't count as prayer. And if you, you know, found yourself, you know, you uh, you were in synagogue and you, you showed up there, your car was parked in the parking lot, but you you totally blanked, you know, from 10 o'clock until uh, 1229, right? And then all of a sudden at 1229 when we're at a donor alarm, you're like, oh my gosh, I was here the whole time and I didn't have any awareness that I was praying. My mom, says, you got to go back and do it again. You got to go back and pray again. Um... <laughs> because, tfila, because prayer is uh, the worship of the heart right but without intention it can 't truly be considered uh, that kind of worship that kind of service right if if, if it 's in a category of commandment that 's emotional in nature that 's uh, related to our to our feelings to our spirit right then if it doesn't involve your feelings if it doesn't involve your spirit if it doesn't involve your awareness then you can't be considered as having fulfilled the commandment now he goes it, it gets more complicated than that um, but uh, in the interest of time let's pause there and just hear if there are any uh, thoughts or comments or questions about about that yeah
1: quite often you can be praying without conscious intent but with emotional output and Quite often these are negative prayers, which don't fulfill the commandment, but cause an effect.
0: Mm -hmm. So, for example?
1: Uh, Oh, you, oh, you, whatever. You know, that Uh is a prayer. It's, It's not a proper one. It doesn't fulfill the commandment. But it provides an action and a reaction.
0: Well, listen. I mean, if part of the commandment is uh, is you know to to uh, ask for one's personal needs or to express one's personal feelings, um, then 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 doing that kind of prayer with the intention to be praying when you're doing it, I think at least counts a little bit, right?
1: Well, it's it's things that you do out of emotional reaction that fulfill the energy of prayer but do not fulfill the proper worshipful
2: like being angry at somebody and wishing something bad would happen to them that, that I'm, I'm thinking one. about you do a situation with, with a friend with emotion. her husband left her and her whole family like wants him to drop dead <laughs> right
1: yeah, that's a, but that's not praying that's... well but well, she... unfortunately it is not commandment filling Fulfilling prayer, but it is prayer.
0: So, what's what's the difference between wishing and praying?
1: If you're wishing, well, wishing is a more human to human, as opposed to praying, which is a more God to human. Mm-hmm. People pray in war for their enemies to die. Pardon? When people pray in war for their enemies to die, or something like that. I'm still waiting to hear something about women. To me, this is all um, commentary about
0: men. What makes you say that?
1: Well, I'm just assuming with the talit and the tefillin and um, those requirements. Oh.
0: Yeah, so the, those are just examples that he gives of that category of commandment. Um, so there's two things I can say about that. The first is uh, that those are just examples. I mean, he could have given examples that had to do with women and would have had the same impact. Um, the second is, uh, though it isn't necessarily true for uh, what he would have, would have advised his community, um, I see those as commandments that are applicable to women as well as men. Right? So, um, so to me, it doesn't... And certainly he would say that prayer is a, uh, a, a commandment that applies... Uh, equally to uh, women as well as men, uh, that women have the same mitzvah, women have the same um, uh, uh, commandment uh, to pray, and it's not. I mean, there are dimensions of it that in, in traditional, uh, in in Orthodox Judaism, um, are considered in the category of time-bound commandments uh, that 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 are that women are exempt from if they want to, uh, but that doesn't encompass all of prayer right? so, he, so, um, so I, I, I don't think that he's speaking only to men here to the I think so, I mean he probably was speaking only to men, but I don't think that, uh, so I don't want you know, to misrepresent him, but I think that what he's what he's offering here isn't strictly limited to men um, and uh, and the way I see it, right, in, in my egalitarian context is that it's talking about all of us
1: Um, and it seems to me that I remember learning about Kavana that maybe a different translation is that you might be a part of a service and not have Kavana while you're there. You, you are, as you said, just kind of there. Right. But if you're not there, then there's no hope for you to have a moment of Kavana that you must be in the place in order to, to have that emotion or that kind of... Um, connection. So, how does that fit
0: into? Well, I, I think that you're right. I, mean, I think that that's. Well, the, I actually have, uh, two thoughts about that. The first is that on a certain level, you're absolutely right. Right. Uh, that um, you know that that uh, that that if you don't even bother to try to pray, then there's certainly no hope for you to have the kavana to pray, um, whatever kavana means. Uh, the other thing I can say about it is that one doesn't necessarily need and, and, and even within you he hasn't said anything about synagogue, right? So one doesn't need to be in a synagogue in order to pray, uh, in order to fulfill one's commandment to pray. Uh, and so you don't have to be in a certain physical space to be able to fulfill well, the commandment.
1: Right. to make the
0: time for you're right. in place or in another place. Right. Uh, so, but, but I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, right, if, if uh, um, you know, uh, you know, the, the whole the whole business of yeah you know, it's it, it has to there there are two levels of intention right you know one is the pre intention right like I, you know I'm going I'm going to at least show up right um, you know and then the other, the other level of intention is what do you what do you have in your mind what do you have in your heart when you are in that space whether it's a physical space or, or, or emotional space the other question about kavanah which is a question he raises later is what what do we mean by it Right? Do we mean that you need to um, understand? I mean, there are different levels of this, right? So is it under, understanding the words of the prayer book? Is that kavana? Is it having emotion behind your understanding of all the words in the prayer book? Is that kavanah? Does it have nothing to do with the words of the prayer book? And is it, uh, um, is it only about um, your sense that you're standing in the presence of God and, you, uh, and, and you're and you in in a, in a moment of connection and relationship with God? Is that what's meant by kavanah? Right? So that's the issue that he's going get, to start getting into in the next paragraph we're going to talk about next time uh, we meet. But there's just one of the since uh, Lisa brought this up and it's a beautiful tradition that we can end on then we'll, we'll, we'll do a little bit more singing then we'll, we'll say goodbye for the day um, but the Talmud has this uh, fantastic story, this also uh, goes to the, the, the powerful role of women in our tradition uh, so we'll, we'll include that too um, so Rabbi Meir is one of the great rabbis of the Talmud and he has a wife, one of the few uh, um, uh, wives of rabbis who are mentioned by name in the Talmud a wife named Bruria uh, and uh, and Rabbi Meir apparently had some scofflaws and some or some ruffians that lived in his neighborhood, and they would always, whenever he'd come home from yeshiva, they would you know taunt him and make fun of him and you know assault him or whatever, right? And he really hated these people, these these this gang that lived in his neighborhood, uh, and so he went home and he prayed for them to die, and his wife heard him praying for these ruffians to die. And she interrupts him and says, what are you doing praying for them to die? And he says, you know, the, the, these guys are causing me constant trouble. They're, you know, because they're causing me trouble, it means that they're scorning God. They deserve to die. And Berea says, why don't you pray for them to do tshuva? Why don't you pray for them to have a change of heart to, to turn their lives around? Uh, and then... They won't be ruffians anymore. They won't be uh, scofflaws anymore. So that's exactly what Rebbe Meir, Reb Meir, prays for them to do tshuva. They do tshuva, they, and uh, and they uh, stop their, their evil ways. He doesn't have the problem anymore, right? So it shows you, first of all, you know, in terms of like praying for your enemies to die in war, right? There there are two ways to there are two ways to prevent your enemies, right? One is to eliminate them, uh, and the other is to change their hearts. Right to to uh, to to remove uh, that which is causing them to be your enemy in the first place. Um, that I think, from by virtue of that story, I think that is the Jewish way. That's the preferred way is to is to uh, operate on the level of people's hearts rather than on the level of cutting off their heads. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it also goes into the depths of, you know, what are we doing when we're praying, right? Are we, are we praying for other people? Are we praying against other people? Are we praying for ourselves? Are we praying against ourselves? Are we praying for things? Are we praying for strength, right? That's, are we praying for external qualities? Are we praying for internal qualities? That's, that's, uh, uh, um, the, one of the central questions. I think that the Jewish tradition by and large says prayer is about, um, the inner life, the inner dimension of, of ourselves, right? Not about you know whether we'll win the lottery, but whether we'll have the capacity to appreciate what we what we have, right? That's the work of prayer. So we'll pause uh, uh, now. We'll continue next month.